This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urate moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Eric McNulty, and welcome to Leader ReadyCast. If there's any topic that should be top of mind right now, it's risk, how we perceive it, how we evaluate it, and what we do about it. From extreme weather to extreme politics, uncertainty is a feature, not a bug of our current age. To help explore what this means for leaders, I'm joined today by Michelle Walker, a risk strategist and best-selling author. She's worked at Think Tank, so now does more doing through her work at Gray Rhino and Company with disaster risk reduction and business continuity. Her book, The Gray Rhino, explored why we too often ignore predictable, probable threats and what to do about it. Her most recent book is You Are What You Risk, The New Art and Science of Navigating an Uncertain World. Both books are well worth reading, and I will draw material from each of them in today's conversation. Michelle, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Delighted to be here. Thank you for, for hosting me. Well, thank you so much for being here. You know, the, the world's been on a really wild ride for the last couple, couple of years. We've had a pandemic, we've had social unrest, record wildfires, droughts, hurricanes, tropical storms. I mean, the list goes on and on. I think we even had locusts in there at some point. You know, in your view, which of these or which aspects of these were truly unpredictable and which in Gray Rhino terms should we have been able to be more ready to address? Well, I think all of these, and uh, you forgot the murder hornets in there too, (laughs) with the the, the cicadas and the the locusts. You know, all of these are things that that recur over time. We've seen them all throughout history, on again, off again. And the question is, okay, what does predictable or unpredictable mean? And, And that's problematic because a lot of people say, well, if you can't say that the stock market is going to fall on September 27th by 3.6%, then you're not predicting it. Uh, Whereas we know all these things are going to happen in in broad terms. We don't know the specifics. We don't know the exact timing, but we do know that they're going to happen. And so so that's why we've got wildfire response. It's why we've got uh, weather services. It's why we've got procedures and processes and people in place to help us when these things happen. Uh, so, So they're broadly predictable, but just not within the specifics. So we can foresee them, even if we can't predict exact the day and time when something's going to show up, which again, it always feels to me like people want to make sure they're not the last one to uh, to leave the party or the first one to leave the party, I guess it would be. Um, For example, with financial crises, which I know you've studied a lot about financial policy and, and, and bubbles and people not wanting to ride it as long as possible. And that can lead to some really uh, calamitous outcomes. Absolutely. What is it? You know, you you uh, you don't want to be the person take the the punch bowl away from the party, and you get right. people who who grow up. You know, particularly if you know you sort of come at, come of age during a a boom market, and the only thing that you've seen is markets going up. You feel like you're really brilliant because you're just making money the whole time, and then when it starts going down, you you've never seen this before. You don't know what to do. And so that can often accelerate the ride down because people are, are panicking and, and freaking out. 
Yeah, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, you've more recently turned to risk and, and your notion of personal, organizational, I assume community risk fingerprints helps explain why we worry about some things and not about others. So what is a risk fingerprint and how can it help leaders understand and perhaps shift how they and those who follow them perceive risk? So a risk fingerprint has two parts. The important part for our purposes is the, the what the what would be the parallel of you know, your actual finger, the the whorls, the arcs, the the you know the the sweat. Um, it's all of the things that go into why you make the risk decisions that you do. Part of it's your innate personality. Some of it's your environment, your upbringing, the people around you, and the experiences that you've had. So just like if you cut your finger with a knife, you've got a, a scar that indelibly changes the fingerprint on your, your real finger, uh, big shocks, uncertainties, experiences in life can actually change your risk fingerprint. And of course, a real fingerprint leaves an imprint on a wine glass at a crime scene or otherwise. And just like that real fingerprint, your risk fingerprint identifies you to the rest of the world. In other words, the choices that you take, and every choice is a risk and every risk is a choice, the risks that you take tell the world exactly who you are, what's important to you, what you're willing to lose, what's what you're not willing to lose. And so when you delve into all the elements that go behind your decisions, it gives you hugely powerful insights into yourself that can improve your decisions, but can also improve your relationships, whether it's with your team at work, uh, you know, an investor, a client, or personally as well. Because when you take that fingerprint analysis and you start thinking about how it applies to other people and where their risk fingerprint came from, it allows you to practice risk empathy. And that opens up a conversation that can help open doors that sometimes you didn't even know were shut. And so can this, the risk fingerprint help explain uh, why, for example, some people were afraid to risk exposure to a vaccine yet willing to expose themselves to a virus that has killed hundreds of thousands of people? I mean, is there something in there that will help us decipher that conundrum? Absolutely. Well, some of it goes, goes to how much information you have, what kind of information you get, how much dread you feel about something, how much power you have over it. There was some very interesting research that I cite in You Are What You Risk uh, about a study of different states across the United States and how risky people thought that the virus was. This was done before the vaccine was available. And they found that in general, people dramatically overestimated the risk, both of getting COVID-19 and of dying from it, if you got it. But there was a huge variation among states in whether people social distanced or wore masks or things like that. And the team, the uh, risk policy working group, found that what made the difference was how leaders communicated that risk. It was that you had something simple that you could do every day that was within your power to do, and that it was effective and that it worked. In other words, telling people that they, they had agency, that they had power over this. And so if you have power and knowledge to do the right thing, that the smartest thing, the thing that, that, that scientists have looked into and have evidence showing that it works, you're more likely to do that. 
But if you're not getting information about what empowers you, if you're not getting good information, then you're going to do what does make you feel empowered. And maybe that is, you know, walking down the hall of a store and taking video of yourself singing, we're not going to take it without any masks on, you know, that, that sometimes you do, you do what you can. It's, it's like the, the guy who is looking under a light for his keys. And the policeman said, you know, what happened? He says, well, I'm trying to find my keys. And the policeman says, oh, well, did you lose them right here? He says, no, I'm not sure where I lost them, but this is where the light is. Yeah. And that's kind of what this, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm going to thumb my nose. I'm going to do my own research. That's kind of where it's coming from. It's, it's a different mechanism of feeling power and control in face of a risk that's, that's really, really scary. That's a really interesting insight. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, the other thing I, I, I comes to mind as I'm listening to you speak here, and this notion of the, the fingerprint, knowing your own, but also sharing it and knowing that of others, your team, your family. Um, you know, one of the things we do in our one of our classes at Harvard is a sort of basic game theory exercise of people choosing. Uh, you know, do you want to? get a guaranteed five dollars and you walk out the door or a one in four chance of getting a hundred dollars and then we do it again for, for paying and, and it's brings out it's a different risk profile different perceptions of risk and rewards and i think the value of that and the part of the value of your your uh exploration of risk fingerprints is getting people to actually talk about how they perceive risk because i think you can get into disagreements you can get into real misunderstandings uh, because if you don't talk about that, I, I see a risk, you see a potential reward. If we don't talk about why that is, we, we, we can disagree without realizing why we disagree. Um, so I, I really love this idea you have of, of, of understanding yourself, but also trying to understand others and sharing that information. Thanks. And, you know, your, your experiment in class is very interesting, too. It brings up a very interesting point of the difference between risk and uncertainty or ambiguity. Uh, there are lots of, of social psychology experience experiments where people are given a choice to take a risk in a situation where they know what the odds are. It's, you know, 50% yellow balls and 50% blue balls. Um, or there's a chance of, of taking a risk based on something where you don't really know, you don't know how many balls are in the, are in the fishbowl. And that's ambiguity and uncertainty. You, you don't know what the odds really are. And so it's, it's quite interesting to see, and I don't know how this is played out in your class, but if you have a, you know, $5, $5 you get right now, or you, you have a set of odds that when you calculate them, it's, you know, it's, it's the same risk. It, it, it equates to the, you know, hundred percent chance of getting $5. Right. Um, some people are going to be more comfortable with that ambiguity and uncertainty, and some people are not. So it's, you know, it seems like a choice where it's the, the same numerical mathematical comparison, but it's a huge difference depending on where people are coming from. And I think that's so important in risk management because there are people who rely on numbers and, and say, okay, this is the objective risk. This is actually how risky it is, but they don't take into account that subjective part that, you know, me walking down a dark alley at in the morning and I'm five foot three and a half, which I used to round up to five, four and finally gave up on, you know, is I don't know how tall you are, but I'm guessing that you're taller than I am. It's not the exact same risk right. for, for two of us. 
And so there's all sorts of things in, in life where you, know, you both see the same risk in front of you, but it's, it's not the same. You don't feel it the same way. And all of that comes out of your risk fingerprint, what's gone into why you feel that way and how much you're relying on emotion and how much you're relying on calculating the odds and, and quote unquote, you know, reason and rationality. That's a really great point because both of those come into any calculation. Um, now, you mentioned earlier that a lot of how we think about risk comes based on our past experiences. Yet, unprecedented is a word we hear a lot these days, perhaps too often, uh, but we hear it a lot. How do you think leaders should identify and correct for the risk blind spots they have? Well, you might say we, we have an unprecedented use of unprecedented. Yes. Although I don't know if there's, there's a way to, uh, you know, to prove that or not. Um, I think there's some, some Google searches that you could Google trends that you can look at to see uh, over, over time. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of things that we feel like, oh, this is so unprecedented. This has never happened before. But one of my uncles during the, the earlier days of the pandemic sent around one of these meme emails. He says, you know, think about somebody who has lived a greater part of the, the last century or so, um, you know, starting, you know, before the, the great flu of 1918. And, you know, they went through a pandemic, you know, two world wars, uh, you know, huge technological advances, huge social upheavals, a bunch of smaller wars. And, you know, you look at 1918 and, you know, they didn't have Zoom. They, you know, they didn't have all the things that we have now. You know, all we had to do was just kind of stay home and hang out. And they didn't have that option in 1918. My, my great-grandfather actually died uh, during that. He had opened a restaurant in November of 1918 in Milwaukee. And November, uh, sorry, 1917. But by November 2018, he was, he was gone. Um, so I look, you know, when I think about all these, these things we're dealing with right now, and it, it feels so heavy, you look back at the amount of uncertainty they dealt with 100 years ago. And you think, hey, wait a minute, you know, maybe <laughs> we don't have it it's so bad. Um, so, you know, so I think that that pers perspective is really important. And, and part of it is focusing on what you do have, you know, what you do know. Um, but to your point, we have so many risk blind spots. And when I talk about gray rhinos, it's very interesting that, that some people try to make the concept into something much more complicated and mysterious than it really is. They're like things that we can sort of see, but we can't. And they come up with some big convoluted thing. And I'm like, look, it's big. It's coming at you. Picture a rhino, the horn, it, you know, it's pawing the ground and it's snorting and it's going to charge at you. Picture this big, huge things. What color is it? It's gray. You know, if, whether it's a black rhino or a white rhino, it's actually gray. It's the most obvious thing about it. And I'm, you know, so I tell them, this is what the metaphor is. It's the thing that you can see that you know is there. And we're a lot more prone than we think to look away. And so the, the message is really that we need to regularly take a fresh look at the obvious things in front of us and assess how well are we doing in dealing with them or not. And I came up with a, a five-stage framework for where different people might be in the stage of, of dealing with it or not, from, from denial to muddling to diagnosis to, to panic to, to action. And once you understand what stage you're in and what stage key stakeholders are in, you can then come up with a better strategy for how you move forward and actually 
deal with it. So you then have a, a process you can go through. And a lot of people feel much more comfortable when they have a process to deal with things. And so it starts with a very simple principle. It's, you know, what's, what's your gray rhino? What's the gray rhino in front of you that's coming at you? And what are you doing about it? And that's so important to risk management because particularly after the great financial crisis, we see all of these people coming up with, with lists of all the risks and, and heat maps of how likely and how impactful it is and all of that. And it's important to, to do that to prioritize things, but people haven't been looking enough at their responses because there's a feedback loop between the risk and what you do about it. And that minimizes the risk. And then in turn, what do you do about it? So, so it's really bringing risk management uh, back to the human behavioral psychological side instead of just what's often overly quantitative look at the risks themselves. That's right. And I think it's actually a link there, what you're talking about between your two books in that when we, if we go right to the word unprecedented uh, we, we first of all it, we're a bit, a bit of denial in your in your uh, your gray rhino framework uh that it, oh it wasn't there we couldn't have seen it it's unprecedented of course we couldn't see it uh when it may have been right there um and i also think it it it, it triggers a, 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 a reaction that there, there's no more that i can know about this because it's all brand new uh, and you mentioned you know, what, what happened in the previous century. Uh, and if you look back at pandemics, to pick the current example, they tend to take about two years to get through the system, historically. That's always been about how long they've taken to work through things. And so when we talk about, oh, this is unprecedented, it's taken, taken this long to get through the pandemic. Actually, it's, it's very much precedented. And I think there's a lot of, if you don't assume it's unprecedented, you actually can go back and find more data to help you figure out where you are, and where you need to go. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, what's so crazy about the, the, the pandemic and also, you know, about hurricanes before that is you know, so many public health organizations had come out and said, hey, this is a really big problem. We're not prepared. We need to do more about it. There was a scenario planning exercise in 2019 under the Trump administration about what to do with a pandemic that actually was, was not dissimilar from what COVID-19 ended, uh, ended up being. And it was similarly, I remember I wrote about in the Gray Rhino about a quote unquote Hurricane Pam, which was an imaginary hurricane that was surprisingly similar to Hurricane Katrina. Again, scenario planning exercise and a blueprint for how to deal with it weeks before Hurricane Katrina. And people didn't pay attention to these plans and what to do with them, which just, just, drives me crazy. So I think it's it's a real lesson for the policy world that we need to invest more, uh, not just giving people the resources they need, but also giving them sort of like the power and the stature that they need, insulating them from, from politics. You know, if you have an administration that doesn't believe in science, but you do have an agency where people spend all of their lives trying to figure out how to protect other people, you know, we need to give those people their due and and elevate them so that if we have another crisis like this, it doesn't get uh, it doesn't get politicized. And, you know, people who get misinformation end up dying because of it. Yeah, it was a real complication. The, the politi 
politicization of any of these conversations makes it uh, very difficult to talk about the gray rhinos and also to actually, to, I think, to, to fairly assess the risk because it's people don't want to talk about certain aspects of it. But that'll be a whole different conversation. Uh, but I do, you, know, you mentioned the government agencies and those who practice science. You know, I know you're not a big fan of the, of the term risk averse, but those large government agencies, most large bureaucratic organizations um, are often called risk averse. Uh, failure of, of imagination was some, a criticism leveled at the government during 9-11, uh, uh, during the pandemic and the ha half the big incidents in between. So when you're thinking about those larger organi you know, large organizations that do have a certain amount of conservatism to it, shall we call it, um, how can leaders move them to being more risk savvy, as you call it in the book, so they actually understand the risks they're facing and they, they take appropriate action uh, with regard to those risks? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I do a lot of work with uh, with emergency preparedness groups. And, and a lot of people talk about, you know, they, they come right out and say, my agency, my organization is risk averse. Um, the reason I have an issue with risk averse, partly is because it's, it's often applied to, uh, you know, millennials or women in, in a fairly pejorative way. And as I said before, this idea of subjective versus objective risk is something else. I mean, am I risk averse compared to you if I don't go down that alley in the middle of the night? Well, it's, we're not looking at the same amount of risk and risk averse technically means that you take less risk, all other things being equal. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of a squishy, uh, squishy term. And the other part is that uh, in decision-making, there's a lot of evidence showing that uh, women are more likely to seek knowledge, to turn to outside experts um, and, you know, get the information that they need. And there is a feedback loop between how much information you have and how prepared you are to deal with the risk. And in turn, that changes the level of the risk of something spiraling out of control or not. The other issue with risk averse and agencies being risk averse is, is how they define the risks. I mean, for them, the big risk is doing something that's not the way we've all, always done it. Mm -hmm. um, and that of course creates other risks. Uh, people often find that the risks of cutting off a risk are sometimes even scarier than if you do nothing, but everyone around you does nothing. So there's a really big component of decision-making in here. Uh, and it goes back to the politicization that I was talking about before, that there are certain organizations and agencies where leaders have to be able to make decisions that are for the good of the people, but that may not be popular. Uh, so this, uh, you know, this question of, of risk aversion depends on how you define the risk, you know, the risk to whom. I mean, yeah, making an under, unpopular decision right now might be bad for your job, but that unpopular decision might save lots and lots of lives. So the, the question of subjective versus objective risk becomes very, very important the question of social risk, you know, the person in your organization who is willing to stick their head out and say, um, great idea, but have we considered this, you know, or, you know, everybody else is poo-pooing this idea, but let's explore the upside risk, where it could go. So that all goes into 
imagination, I think, and creativity and, and dynamism of organization. And of course, uh, a lot of government, government agencies are, are not known for that. So I think it, it's a question of going into the, the why and how you can change that in, in organizations. And once again, a good prompt to at least talk about risk and how we perceive risk, because as you mentioned, there is, there's risk in, in not acknowledging risk. Um, and just because you pretend it's not there doesn't mean it goes away. Um, much in the classic Greg Rhino analogy, just because you, don't, you pretend you don't see it doesn't mean it's not going to come get you. So I want to look forward a bit. Looking forward to the next three to five years, what are the top two or three pieces of advice you're giving to executives now about both Greg Rhinos and, and the topic of risk? Well, I think it, it goes down to, well, first with gray rhinos, a, a lot of people will ask me, um, you know, is this a gray rhino? Is this a gray rhino? And I've started responding by saying, I really hesitate to answer that question because the gray rhino depends on your perspective. What's a gray rhino for me is not necessarily the gray rhino for you. And the concept is not nearly as powerful if I become the great gray rhino arbiter of the world and go and tell everybody what the, what the gray rhinos are. You know, it's really most powerful if it's an emotional connection that you personally make. And so in organizations, I also ask people about what people at different levels of the organization see as the gray rhinos because in a lot of places you know, and, and yeah, i'll talk about this in, in events and i just see everyone nodding their heads super emphatically around the room and i'll say you know the frontline people the the, the day-to-day employees in the company every single one of them can tell you what the big gray rhinos are for the company does that always make it all the way up to the c-suite and is it the same as what the c-suite sees as gray rhinos and often it doesn't match uh, so it's it's important to have that conversation at all levels of an organization. And at its heart, the Grey Rhino is really a communication tool. It's getting people to make that emotional connection, you know, like, like, like Aesop did with, with all of his animals. So I think that's really important is that consider the perspective and consider that your perspective might not be someone else's. And that's hugely important when you do a stakeholder analysis. Where are all your key stakeholders in recognizing whether a gray rhino is there and where are they in what they're going to do about it? Because if they don't see the same gray rhino as you do, you've got to come, come up with a way to align uh, what you see as the problem. So defining the problem is a big part of it. And the other half, and this is something that I think is more in you are what you risk, goes back to what I mentioned about the feedback loop between your responses and the risks themselves. That, uh, that subjective risk is so important, objective risk is often an illusion, uh, and that we pay too much attention to risks themselves. Um, often the numbers, the probabilities that we assign to risks uh, turn out to be just pieces of fiction, like the, the credit ratings on the subprime mortgages that were a, a quote unquote investment grade. Um, you know, that sometimes these, these estimates we make of probabilities, those are based on biases that we have. You know, how much do we have to lose? How big of a cushion do we have? How much benefit do we think we're going to get from it? Uh, you look at things like the, the, the GM ignition switch, and I think that people really miscalculated the likelihood and the impact of something going really, really wrong. 
uh, because they saw a lot of potential benefit for themselves in ignoring it. And because of the way our brains work, they underestimated both the impact and the likelihood. So being aware of how you're reacting and why and where biases might be coming in, how you've got your decision-making group set up, uh, you know, what sort of risk fingerprints do those people in the room have, and how do your different strengths and weaknesses complement each other? So it goes back to really decision-making. Well, that's great. That's a great blueprint for moving forward. I want to close with the final question. I'd like to ask all of our guests, what gives you hope? You spent a lot of time working in in the risk business, obviously, you see a lot of potential downsides in life. What gives you hope? Maybe that's kind of a chicken and the egg question, actually. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, in, in the policy world, I mean, any sort of policy world, they're sort of depressing things out there. And it's what it is is really about. What's the problem that you're trying to solve? And if you don't intrinsically have a certain level of hope, then there's no point in starting out and doing anything in the first place. Uh, So I think, you know, every time I see an advance, something going forward, some somebody coming out and saying, you know, hey, what's the gray rhino in front of me? Like, no, that wasn't a black swan. That was something that we did see coming and we can learn from it to apply it to the gray rhinos in front of us. You know, we, we might not know exactly the circumstances or how it's going to play out, but we've got that big outline. We know it's big. We know it's impactful. We know the odds are pretty good that it's going to happen you know, sooner rather than later. And once we have that information, let's move forward with it. So it's it has been very encouraging to me over the past year and a half, how many people have, have shifted from this black swan, we never saw it coming attitude to looking at gray rhinos and thinking about how can we do a better job of dealing with the big obvious thing that's coming right at us. Well, that indeed is a good way to a hopeful attitude to take into the world and we will see more coming at us. We'll be able to do more about it. Michelle Walker, thank you so much for joining us today on Leader ReadyCast. You can find more about Michelle at thegrayrhino.com, and that's gray with an A, thegrayrhino.com. And the two books we discussed today are The Gray Rhino and You Are What You Risk. Both of them should be on your bookshelf or on your desk side where you can grab them more readily. They're well worth the read. They'll help inform your view of the world and the risks that are coming at you, as well as what to do about them. Until next time, always be ready to step up to lead. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.